Yeah, it's fun to be here tonight. Um, it's fun to be here with Kenna, my daughter. Uh, for those of you who don't know Kenna, um, yeah, she's the joy of my heart. And anytime that we get to do stuff together, it's uh, the best. So um, we are uh, working our way slowly and almost completely through the book of Job. And um, my father was a minister for several decades. And uh, today I was actually in my study and, and he gave me a Bible when I was um, ordained. Um, 20 plus years ago. And uh, every once in a while, I just like open it up to see like what notes that he write in his Bible. And I opened up to the book of Job and it was just blank. And I was like, well, uh, my dad who was in ministry for most of his life, uh, we who have attended church all of our life, um, just there's not a lot of sermons given on the book of Job. And um, so I just really appreciate the fact that our family of churches has waded into this book um, and not just done like a one talk on it, but really tried to attempt um, to, to wade into the deep end. Uh, the, the cycle that we're in in the book of Job tonight is what we would call the third cycle. So it's the third set of speeches of Job and his three friends. And um, I'm going to attempt to try to uh, condense Job 22 to Job 31. So that's the whole section that I'm attempting to do. So um, let me just say this about the third cycle. Um, if you have ever had an argument with friends... Um, the longer the argument goes, the more exhausted people become, the more that you recognize that exhausted people don't listen well. Um, they don't show compassion well, and they don't always display wisdom well. Um, and I think that that pretty much summarizes the third section of Job. Um, everyone is talking over each other. It's actually an incredibly difficult and challenging uh, kind of cycle to, to interpret because you're not even sure who's talking at times. But Job, uh, in, in his own words in Job 26, he says this, well, you've certainly been a great help to a helpless man. You've come to the rescue just in the nick of time. What wonderful advice you've given to me. What amazing insights you've provided. Where in the world did you learn all this? How did you become so inspiring? Um, so if you aren't picking up, Job at this point has just reverted to complete sarcasm uh, with his three friends, and he is, he's fed up with all of their words. Um, and they seem to be fed up with his the defense of his integrity. Um, and, and here, kind of in this third cycle, where everything starts to unravel, there's a few things that I noticed. Um, Job is in this wisdom literature, uh, but it's not just the content, but it's also the context of the story that's giving us wisdom. Uh, wisdom is woven throughout this book, uh, but it's also hidden in this book. Um, in some ways, wisdom of God is in plain sight, and in sometimes it's hidden in plain sight. And I think that that's where some of the wisdom of uh, Job is in these couple of chapters. Uh, Eugene Peterson remarks about the book of Job that ultimately Job's suffering does not call God's existence into question, but he calls our lives into question. And, and so tonight I want to look at what is being called into question for each of us uh, through these chapters. Um, so Job 28, um, the, the arguments are kind of spiraling out of control. And in Job 28, there's this really beautiful poem and it, it almost doesn't fit. It's this wisdom poem. It's a literary device in which uh, Job is talking so much about uh, earth and where can you find wisdom. And it's not in the sky and it's not in the sea and it's not um, in gold or in the gems under the earth. And in some ways, some of the commentators said, actually what it feels like is like the, the curtain is dropped on the play. And there's almost this person off to the side of the stage um, who's just like remarking after you've just been like exhausted through all of these arguments and kind of lack of wisdom that this voice off the side is saying, where can you find wisdom? Uh, Gustavo Gutierrez describes chapter 28 as the poetic hinge um, in which the door finally opens. 
The focus of the poem uh, in Job 28 about wisdom, I believe, is found in the very last line of Job 28. And he says, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Here, after a third and exhausting round of dialogue is what's building to a climax, I think is the key about where do we find wisdom. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. It echoes Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so where do we begin? Well, scriptures call us always to begin with the fear of the Lord. And here's where I would like to borrow a little bit more wisdom from Eugene Peterson, because this was important for me, because growing up as a kid in church, I heard fear of the Lord, and I just heard fear of the Lord. And Eugene offers this. The fear of the Lord is not four separate words. It's one idea. It's a phrase. It is one complete concept that you cannot take the words apart and then look at their meaning and then try to put them back together. It's one idea. It's all the gravity of, and grace of God spun together and spinning together consistently and constantly. And it's this one complete concept that Eugene most eloquently put that I have ever heard. The fear of the Lord is fear without the scary part. And what does that look like? I think it might most be understood to us as wonder. It's so above and beyond us that we are now left in awe. And this is where wisdom begins. And it seems to be this is where um, a significant lack of wisdom in our moment has been found because there are a few things that we are just in awe of, that we wonder, that we don't have an immediate response or reaction to. But scriptures say that this is the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's where wisdom begins. Eugene continues with this great quote about wisdom. He says, wisdom is the art of living skillfully in whatever actual conditions we find ourselves. Wisdom is not having um, conjecture removed from context. It's applied understanding and applied insight. It seems to be currently we have a world full of experts who have never done anything or let anyone, but they're experts. They have like great opinions about everything and how everything should be done, but they have never led themselves or anybody else in actual conditions. So wisdom, Eugene argues, is living deeply and honestly and skillfully in whatever actual conditions you are in. And so the actual conditions that I find myself in is a single parent of a middle school student. The actual conditions that I find myself in is leading a family of churches through an incredibly unexpected season. The actual conditions that I find myself in is that I live on a block with 40 houses, and in those 40 houses, there are married and widowed and divorced and partnered. There are straight and lesbian and black and Asian and white, and there are neighbors over 90 who have lived there all of their life and neighbors under 20 who have just moved in. There are new parents who are expecting their very first child and there are parents with adult children that just moved back in. And I might have an idea or you might have an idea about how all of these people in these 40 houses are supposed to live. But I must first filter how I am living skillfully in the actual conditions that I find myself. How I am living faithfully to my daughter to my coworkers, to our churches, and to those neighbors in those 40 homes on South Holly Street. It's in these actual specific geographic conditions that I am being invited to live an integrated life following the way of Jesus. It's those actual conditions that I need to live wisely and live well. And I think that this is what 
Job 28 is calling us to, is where do we find wisdom in our moment? We find it when we begin to wonder and have awe about what God is up to. Well, if you've read all of Job, congratulations. If you've read none of Job, let me encourage you to read Job 29 and 30 and specifically read it out of the message. I think it's like the cliff note version of Job. Job does a great job of summarizing how great life used to be and how hard life is now. This is how he starts Job 29. Oh, how I long for the good old days when God took such very good care of me. He always held a lamp before me and I walked through the night by its light. Oh, how I miss those golden years when God's friendship graced my home. When the mighty one was still by my side and my children were all around me. When everything was going my way and nothing seemed too difficult. Curious, has anybody felt over the last six months, oh, how I long for the good old days when everything was going my way and nothing seemed too difficult? I think this is like the words that invite us into the story now. Because Job has put together an inventory of what was and now is. What's really fascinating about Job 30 is that he's mostly consumed with what everybody else thinks about him. And one Jewish commentator says, we have to remember in a world before mirrors, mostly our reflected self was what other people said about us. I was humored because the commentator wrote like in the 1940s and 50s uh, before, you know, uh, this thing. Because this is our reflected self now, right? We don't worry about what we look like in a mirror. We worry about what we look like on a screen. But Job is primarily reflecting um, how people see him now and how people see him is as somebody who has been left behind. And so he takes this inventory about what was and now what is. And I think there's something really beautiful in being able to put how much suffering he has experienced in just these two chapters. I think one of the gifts of Job is that it's such a complete and total loss that he encompasses any and all suffering that we've ever experienced. There's nothing that we could experience that this story, um, this beautiful poem about the complete and total loss that Job has experienced, our suffering cannot find a home in it. Most of all, all of us have experienced some level of or sense of suffering over the last six months, I would say. But on September 1st, when I began to like look over the last six months and the suffering that I had experienced, as I began to lament the challenges at home with school and work and home and school and home and work and home and school and that weird combination that I had never had to balance before, I mostly came to recognize that I've been uncomfortable, I've been disoriented, and it has required a deeper level of perseverance. But because I was reading Job over and over, I started to recognize that the suffering that I've experienced over the last six months has not been a suffocating sort of suffering. Not the suffering that I have seen elsewhere in the world. It feels like another lifetime ago, but for a long time, I served as a missions pastor. And I traveled often to work in camps, most often IDP camps, which was internally displaced people, which would be like a refugee camp. And in those camps, there was this total sense of loss of culture, of physical, of mental, emotional, and relational connection. It, it was a, such a loss that it felt suffocating of hope. 
So when I began to reframe the loss or suffering over the last six months, I began to have much more of a historical perspective of my suffering within, I think, the current circumstances. Now, I don't by any means want to say that this is not hard. The season that we're in, it is hard and times are dark and they're incredibly discouraging. But I would offer that suffering for all of us has been within the scope of suffering of the story of Job and even within the scope of suffering of humanity in our lifetime. That sometimes it might be helpful to take an inventory of what we've actually lost. Richard Rohr, Catholic writer, says, not everything can be cured or fixed but it should be named. I think sometimes the reason that our suffering feels so overwhelming is because we haven't taken inventory like Job about what was and what is. And I think there's an invitation to take um, about the inventory of our suffering, an invitation to consider where we are and where we've been and where we're going, who we're becoming. Suffering, as Joe very wisely said last week, the thing that can be incredibly exhausting about it is that it's unknown in its length that lies ahead. And that feels like mostly of where we are in our current cultural moment is that we don't know what lies ahead, but I do think that we can take inventory and reflect on what has been over the last six months, what has been lost. To be able to reflect on that and invite that kind of inventory of our soul about the suffering that we've experienced which is why the prayer of examine, the prayer that's on the card, I think is so important on a daily or a weekly basis. That we would take inventory about what we've lost. That it wouldn't just stack up and we would begin to live kind of unconsciously reactively to that. Kenna and I have pretty much since the beginning of the pandemic taken walks. And we are always asking the same question, what did the coronavirus take today? What did the coronavirus not take today? What did the coronavirus give today? Trying to continue to have a, a short list of what has been lost, what has remained because of God's grace and goodness, and then what are the unexpected gifts that have come out of this season of suffering? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To some degree, when we begin to cultivate this like awe and wonder, we begin to actually answer the question, what has been given through a season of suffering? which leads us to Job 31. Job 31 is a masterpiece. Probably, I would argue, one of the best chapters ever written about justice in the Bible. What's fascinating is there's a defense and description of a morality that is centuries ahead of its time when you consider who Job is and, and what it's being um, written as. So as we said at the very first um, Job is not described as a Jewish man. And yet this description of the way that he treats people with equity becomes in so many ways like a foundation for Jewish moral code that then would transfer over to do a Judeo-Christian ethic. It's this exemplar of right living. It's this demonstration of equity of people and a care for women, employees, the poor, the suffering, and even his enemies that had never even been conceived of before. If you were to read Job 31 as only Job's defense of his righteousness, you could do that, but you would then miss the description of justice that I think Job is painting for all of us and inviting us to consider to take the inventory of is this the kind of just living that we live? In the midst of suffering, there is this wisdom that's being offered, this subplot that is a picture of what does it look like to not only live wisely, but to live justly. 
Here's a couple of lines out of Job 31. He first talks about his fidelity. He says, adultery is a fire that burns everyone's house down. He talks about justice and he says, have I been unfair to my employees? And then he has this great line. He says, aren't we all equals before God? He talks about mercy and he says, have I ignored the needs of the poor? He talks about being generous. He says, did I ever set my heart on making money? Did I ever go worship at the bank? He talks about being kind. He says, did I ever celebrate over my enemies ruined? He talks about hospitality and he says, didn't everyone who worked for me say he fed us well? Wasn't his house always open? He concludes with this bold declaration that I was on the phone with Joe this last week and I was like, who has the guts to say this? He says this, I am prepared to account for every move I've ever made to anyone and everyone, prince or pauper. Like this is his line in Job 31. I am prepared to account for every move I've ever made to anyone and everyone. How many of us would be willing to make that statement? Like anyone, everyone I've ever interacted with, bring them up, let them say whatever they want to. I'm willing to take account for what they've said. Commentator Francis Anderson concludes this about Job. To Job, right conduct is almost entirely social. In Job's conscience, to omit to do good to any fellow human being of whatever rank or class would be a grievous offense to God. Like the radical nature of Job 31 is so big. I think it's, um, it's difficult to understand how much of a foundation this begins to build for our expectations today about how we are supposed to interact with each other. Job goes through this list of people that had been exploited and it was understood that they would to be exploited. Women, employees, Slaves, servants, poor, suffering, your enemies, all those people were simply there for you to move around to get to the life that you wanted, not to treat them equitably. And here in these final words of Job, as Job's words conclude in Job 31, in the defense of his own innocence, I think he's weaving this wisdom of a life of justice that's about living rightly and wisely in the actual conditions that he finds himself in with the actual people that he finds himself surrounded by. Tim Keller writes in his book, Generous Justice, about this idea of justice. That the word for justice, mishpat, occurs in its various forms over 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And its most basic meaning is to treat people uh, with, with fairness and equity. But we get more insight when we consider a second Hebrew word, Keller says, uh, for being just. And it's this word T-Z-A-D-E-Q-U-A-H. And I'm not even going to try, right? But it's this T-Z-A-D-E-Q-U-A-H that refers to not just right living, but right relationship. And it refers to this day-to-day living in which a person's relationships with family and society are all governed with fairness and generosity. And so then Keller says this. It's not surprising then to discover that T-Z-A-D-E-Q-U-A-H and Mishpat are brought together scores of times in the Bible. And when these two words, T-Z-A-D-E-Q-U-A-H and Mishpat are held together as they are over three dozen times, the English expression that best conveys the meaning is social justice. See, here's what's fascinating is that we are in... uh, social uproar about what does a just and equitable society look like in America in 2020. And Job is writing centuries ago in a, in a context 
that was completely foreign to any of these ideas about what did it look like to live in right relationship justly and equitably with everyone around him. So I think the story of Job's incredibly challenging for us to consider two things about how to live wisely and how to live justly. If we were to take an inventory about how we have lived justly, would we be as bold as Job to say, bring anybody and everybody? I think in so many ways, Job's story is an archetype. It's a story for us to consider what does it look like to suffer, but to suffer wisely and justly. Job's included in this wisdom literature in the Bible, not just because of the depths of question that Job has about God, but I think because his questions are posed to us about how are we living? Are we living well? Are we living wisely? Are we living justly? And Job 31 ends with these words, the words of Job and his three friends were finished. Now, a young guy comes along and feels like he needs to get his two cents in, and Joe will talk about that uh, next week. But in so many ways, like the whole argument ends between Job and his friends with, I think, two very clear ideas being presented, not just to them, but to us. How do we live wisely and how do we live justly? And so I'd like to close with two questions in somewhat of a pastoral direction sense for us. The book of Job provides a frame that our lives are being called into question. And I think these are the two questions that are being asked. Are we living wisely and are we living justly? A board member several months ago said, the need of the hour, Jared, is wisdom. We need men and women to live wisely and lead wisely right now. We need to live into the actual conditions that we find ourselves in. And that begins with some sense of awe and wonder about who God is and the weight of responsibility that he has given to us and the levity of his grace. And the need of the hour is justice to live rightly and in right relationship to everyone around us, regardless of class or race or color. And so what does it look like to live wisely and justly? What does it look like to ask for wisdom about the actual conditions that you are living in, including this incredibly polarized political landscape? And so I'll offer one piece of wisdom that I heard this last week on a webinar that I hope helps you that I think has to do with living wisely and justly. Justin Gibney, who is one of the leaders of the One Campaign, said it doesn't matter if your candidate wins on November 3rd, which you might have already like, decided that nothing else after this matters. But he says it doesn't matter if your candidate wins on November 3rd. What matters is your witness. If your candidate wins, but you lose your witness as someone who follows Jesus, then you've ultimately lost. That the next two months, for those of us who would claim to follow the way of Jesus, is not about seeing a particular candidate or a particular party win. It's about holding a witness as somebody who is following the way of Jesus and living wisely and living justly. That has become my daily prayer for our family of churches, that we would live wisely and that we would live justly, that we would reframe this moment with this fear of the Lord, this living with wonder and awe about who God is and this context that he has put us in 
and what a unique opportunity to be a witness of the way of Jesus. So may we take inventory of who we are and who we're becoming, that we're living wisely and rightly and justly. That these are the actual conditions that we find ourselves. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for a community in which I continue to be encouraged and challenged. Um, Encouraged to hear you and respond to you, to build my life around you and on you. And challenge God to consider in what ways do I need to continue to live justly to, to everyone around me. Father, we pray for our family of churches, specifically for the sake of Gracie's Colfax, um, that it would be a witness of your love and your grace uh, to this neighborhood and to this city. And we pray for each of our lives to be that um, in the neighborhoods and the homes near us. And we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.